I guess my misery caught up with me. And one day I came into work and I was told your services are no longer needed. Like we're, we're firing you without cause or we're letting you go without cause. And for me, that was devastating because at that time, like the misery hadn't caught up with me in my brain yet. Like it's easy for me to say that looking back, but at the time my ego was telling me, wait a minute, You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is Sheena Brady, a social entrepreneur and leader at Shopify. In 2013, Sheena started her first company, TST, out of her condo. Today, TST has grown into a seven-figure social enterprise selling all-natural loose-leaf tea while giving back to programs empowering women. In 2019, Sheena created Founders Fund, the first digital accelerator supporting underrepresented women-identifying entrepreneurs during every stage of their journey. Members can access mentorship, resources, and non-repayable funding for their business. To date, Founders Fund has distributed over $100,000 to fund women-owned businesses while providing mentorship and community to over 600 founders across Canada. In this episode, Sheena spills the tea on her winding personal and entrepreneurial journey. She opens up about the challenges and barriers that she's faced along the way and how this drove her to help others and create community. We chat about things ranging from entrepreneurship and financial literacy to when Sheena knew that her husband was the one. So without further ado, let's dive right into it. Sheena, welcome to Create Community. I'm so excited to chat with you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I am so excited to dive into this and learn a little bit more about how you became a community builder. So let's take it all the way back to high school. What were you like during that time of your life? What were some of your interests or extracurriculars when you were growing up? I was very theatrical, I would say, or basically into the the drama of things. Like I was really into being a part of um, the high school play, uh, you know, involved in like singing lessons, the improv team, that sort of thing. I I really just had this like bug for performance, I guess. That being said, though, I actually went to three different high schools. And so that's like an interesting part of my upbringing is that um, the only constant I knew was change. Um, Yeah, I, I had, you know, moved around a lot. And so that kind of created the stage for an interesting dynamic, that's for sure. That's really cool. So all those times that you moved around, uh, when you started at a new school, did you feel like you were able to sort of reinvent yourself and find new interests and different types of people? Yeah, I feel like I not only had to, in a sense, regularly reinvent myself, but also be a bit of a, a chameleon, I guess, if you will. Because again, the only constant in my life was change growing up. I'd moved around a lot. I've got, I went to several different elementary schools, three different high schools. And, you know, I love your podcast. And I had an opportunity to actually uh, listen to several different episodes. And I, I know that one of like the common questions that you ask is, you know, were you a community builder growing up? Or did, did you have any of that natural innate ability? And, and for me, I actually didn't have any. I wasn't you know, a community builder because I was constantly thrown in environments of change. And I feel like that was probably a reason why I longed for community so badly. Even, you know, growing up, I I had a little bit of of a complicated upbringing. And if you even look at like my family history and my family tree, I can't even go that far back. Like I don't really know a lot about my ancestors for like various reasons. 
That makes sense. I think, you know, if, if it's something that you were lacking when you were growing up, I feel like it's almost like subconsciously there. And, you know, as you kind of go through your journey, it's something that you think about and something that you really crave. So it's, it totally makes sense that, you know, later on, you did become a community builder. So you mentioned that you had sort of a, a complicated upbringing. Can you share some of those barriers that you faced in your formative years? Yeah, absolutely. So my mom had me at a very young age of 17 and my mom chose to basically have me instead of finish high school right and so that created like a very interesting environment to grow up in excuse me and and the analogy that i like to give is in a lot of ways we were both growing up together at the exact same time like i was growing up through uh, childhood while she was growing through adulthood and so you know, you don't really know who you are in your late teen years. Let's let's be real. You're kind of like figuring out your identity as you go. And so growing up as a child, I was growing alongside my mom who was trying to like figure out who she was, you know, um, in this world and, and what was important to her. And so, you know, I, I love my mom to pieces. She remains, you know, a very strong role model in my life for genuinely, I believe, doing the best she could as a single with little resources and um, really just the subject of like her own complicated environment growing up. And so all that to say, you know, there were times that we obviously did not get along well at all. We fought often kind of growing up and I often times, unfortunately, didn't really feel like I had the safest environment at home. There was a lot of love at times, don't get me wrong. But again, I, I think that the, the complicated dynamics just made for a very, you know, a non-traditional type of upbringing in, in a lot of ways. That kind of leads to, I guess, um, go, uh, going through high school. You know, I, I mentioned I went to three different high schools, but the one consistent person I had in my life who was actually my, I, my high school sweetheart, I was very, very close to his family. They really kind of took me in as their own. And again, they made me feel like I had a, a space I could go to anytime I wanted um, unconditionally. And Louise specifically is my high school sweetheart's mom. And she just had this huge belief in me that I didn't really have in myself. You know, if you look at my my history and my family, I was the first person to not only graduate high school, um, but I was the first person to Uh, eventually go to college and and graduate from college as well. And so if you just like translate my family history into data points, like statistically, you know, I I should have never really gotten out of that bubble or that cycle, so to speak. It really just started with the most simple but impactful thing. And when we were close to graduating high school, my high school sweetheart and I, you know, we were fantasizing about, oh, you know, what's next? Like what you know, college or universities are we going to apply for? Like what cities are we going to move to? That sort of thing. And yeah, it was all great fantasizing that um, together. But I actually knew my reality. I knew that um, I couldn't afford to go to school. Um, I was also deeply afraid of debt. Uh, I had actually uh, seen my mom um, at a young age open up like a home salon uh, and take out loans to do that and only to have that business fail and struggle with bankruptcy a few short later, a few short years later. And I saw what that what that did to her, you know, and I think that kind of created a bit of fear. So I said this to Louise, I said, look, like, I'm not going to go to college or university, I'm going to take a year off. And she said, No, you're not, you're going to go to school. And um, we're going to pay for it. 
And this family didn't have like a, a ton of money either. She found it work within her family's own limited budget and she paid for my first year of education. And I was just absolutely floored. And her reasoning was a few things. She said, you know, first of all, if you take a year off of school, to supposedly save money in that whole thing. Like, again, look at your family history and everything. I'm very worried that you might not go to school at all once you take that gap year. Um, and you'll just kind of like get in the cycle of like working and, and whatever, and, and education will be such an afterthought. And so I said, okay, I get that, but why me? Like, I'm not that special. Why would you pay for like a whole year of my education? And then she just said, why not you? And that was just, a pivotal moment for me that I'll never forget this idea of why not you like it doesn't matter who you are what your circumstances are what your environment is why not you you know and I really carried that mindset and that audacity throughout the rest of my young adulthood into my career into this very day and, and I fundamentally believe that very simple sentence that Louise shared with me then it was a huge catalyst for me believing that yeah, I, I can do I can do whatever I want if I really put, you know, my mindset and the energy and the right resources towards it. That's absolutely incredible. I just got goosebumps listening to that story again. What an incredible woman. And that's uh, really was a catalyst and so life changing that she was able to do that for you and to really believe in you and in turn help you believe in yourself. So she paid for your first year of college. What did you end up studying? So ironically, Marsha, I went to school for business and I dropped out. <laughs> I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak for my own experience. But I feel like I really wasn't ready for that shock, that culture shock from like high school life to college. And I, I was also only 17. So I felt so guilty when I dropped out because, again, Louise had made this like, you know, this huge investment in me. But, you know, I dropped out a few, I think like a few months in and I, I went to work right away and I found this opportunity to work on a beautiful resort in Turks and Caicos where they were looking for servers and bartenders and, and service managers to help train um, the locals on North American hospitality standards of service, that sort of thing, because it was an island that was fairly new to, to tourism. And so I thought, OK, this will be a great opportunity. This will be a great escape. Uh, so I went and did that and actually I became so in love with the world of hospitality and it was really important for me to go back to school for something and then finally the dots connected. It was like, okay, I'm going to go back to school. This time I'm going to go for something that I know I'm really interested in um, and that I'm passionate about, which was hospitality. And so I went to school again and then I graduated three years later in hospitality management. That's awesome. I don't think it's anything to feel bad about that you dropped out of business school. I feel like some of the best entrepreneurs out there have done that. So kudos to you. And I did do business school and I know how grueling and the, you know scary that first year is and what a huge change it is out of high school. So I, I totally understand why. It's okay to not be the most academic person or not have uh, experience in the arena that you want to get into. You can still figure it out. Absolutely. I think it all goes back to what you said. Why not you? Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about how you sort of progressed in the hospitality industry. I, I know you made such a huge career for yourself there. How did that sort of progress? Yeah, so I worked for a decade in hospitality, mostly in leadership in hospitality. And I was a professional wine sommelier as well. You could call that like my creative outlet in a very demanding industry. And um, it led me to work in some incredible cities. I got to work uh, in very high profile restaurants and hotels throughout New York City, San Francisco, and then 
I ended up in Toronto as a part of the opening team at the, the Shangri-La Hotel. And at that time, you know, I had just moved from California back to Canada and um, I was like really excited to be a part of this team. And I went to the general manager of the hotel and I said, hey, I want to get my hands on your wine list. Like, I really want to be a part of creating a very robust, beautiful wine program. And I don't know, he kind of gave me this like sheepish grin like this, you know, because at the time I think it was like maybe was it 24 yeah, I was maybe 24 by then. And uh, he kind of gave me this look like you have no business, you know, curating like the most, you know, this pristine wine list sort of thing. But what came out of his mouth was, hey, don't worry about our wine list. We actually have a master wine sommelier in training who's going to be doing our wine list. So I want you to do our tea program. And I was just like, really, dude? Like, and I obviously didn't say this, but in my mind, I was like, I don't want to create your tea menu. Like that sounds so belittling. Like I have a background in wine and I had proven myself for years, you know, to be able to do this. And you want me to create your tea program? Like I don't even drink tea. And so I explained to him, I said, well, okay, no problem. I I figured this was going to be an easy task. I'm like, so what do you want me to do? Like find some Lipton's and Red Rose and call it a day. And he laughed at me. He said, no, absolutely not. He said, actually, I know it might sound like a very small thing or a small program. He's like, but I want you to actually build the biggest, most extensive and PR worthy tea program in the entire city. And he's like, I want a minimum of 75 different blends of tea and herbal ingredients sourced from around the world. And I also want to make sure that we maintain an excellent program in tea ceremonies and tea preparation. And then I was like, oh, what did I get myself into by agreeing to this? I'm never going to be able to like live up to this, this standard. I knew that if this was going to be uh, my responsibility, I needed to make sure that I could walk the talk. So I found the Tea and Herbal Association of Canada, um, which represents the entire tea industry from garden to cup here in, in the country. And uh, they had a tea sommelier program. And I thought, okay, this is cool. Like this is, this will look great on my resume. I'll be able to learn what I need to learn and, and, and execute a program. So um, here I was in this middle of this eight month journey to become a tea sommelier with all these classes and tastings and stuff like that. And I actually ended up falling so deeply in love with the world of tea in a way that I could have never imagined. And I think the reason why is because it really correlated to like my, what I really loved about the world of wine, like the nerdiness of wine that I love. It's like, you know, you have red grapes and white grapes. And from there you have tons of varietals, right? Like you have your champagnes and your pinots and your pinot grigios and your Shiraz. And like the list goes on and on and on. But the reality is all those different types of wine come from two grapes, white grapes or red grapes. And the difference in what makes all of those different blends, where it's harvested, how it's harvested, the soil conditions, the climate, all of that affects the final product. And it's the exact same thing with the world of tea. And a lot of people don't realize that, but like your five primary different kinds of tea all come from the exact same plant. The other thing that I loved beyond the nerdiness of tea was that I was surviving off of like seven or eight cups of coffee a day to get through my career in hospitality, okay? Anybody that works in hospitality knows what I'm talking about. Like they are long, grueling shifts and they are nights and they're weekends and they're holidays. Um, But the reality is like a cup of coffee a day, maybe two, it's great, like no problem. But when you start going past that peak, it's really not good for you. And then you're getting the jitters and anxiety and stomach issues and all this type of stuff. So when when I found tea, I learned that 
no matter how I feel, there's always a tea for that. And that was really cool to me. That's amazing. I love tea. I've always loved tea growing up. And you're so right. Like there is a tea sort of for every mood. Coffee is definitely not as versatile. And that's so cool that you got to learn so much about it. And it's such a unique world. I also worked in hospitality for a number of years, actually, like all through high school, pretty much and all through university. I I know those long shifts like I, I worked at Dave and Buster's um, here in Toronto. And those were long days. Like sometimes you start at, you know, 11 to get it all set up in the morning. And then your shift goes until two or three in the morning by the time you get home. So it's it's pretty crazy. So how did your career in hospitality come to an end? Like, why did you end up moving on from that? Yeah, so at the height of my career in hospitality, I, like I said, I was working in the Shangri-La Hotel. I was a service leader. I was, I, I thought I was living the dream, Marsha. Like, I was getting paid to do the thing that I went to school for um, and getting paid well, in my opinion, at the time. And um, yeah, I just felt like, you know, not that I had made it because it was my, my dream then to own a restaurant one day, but like I felt like, yeah, that this, this is where I was supposed to be. At the same time, if I'm being completely honest with myself re- retrospectively, inside I was miserable. And I think like when you are making a career in hospitality, it's not for everyone, just like entrepreneurship, it's not for everyone. And you are giving up nice weekends and holidays to make strangers happy at the end of the day. That's what it is, right? And you compromise and sacrifice your ability to form your own strong relationships, whether it's with your family or your loved ones or like friends, anything like that outside of that environment. Like I didn't have time for a social life. My social life was literally just knocking back like a couple drinks at the end of a long shift at Earl's. And I guess my misery caught up with me. And one day I came into work and I was told your services are no longer needed. Like we're, we're firing you without cause or we're letting you go without cause. And for me, that was devastating because at that time, like the misery hadn't caught up with me in my brain yet. Like it's easy for me to say that looking back. But at the time, my ego was telling me, wait a minute, like you just sacrificed 10 years of your life, education, everything for an industry that made you just feel disposable in an instant. And it was devastating. And I, I think like, I definitely hit a a bit of a rock bottom at that point. Um, I think like, sure. Some logical people would be like, Hey girl, like you got fired. Like just go get another job in your field. But like, I think because I had that misery internally, it affected me way more deeply than I expected. It's that quote about insanity, right? It's like doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I'm like, if I just like jump into another intense role in hospitality leadership, I'm just gonna find myself in the exact same space. Like I need to start over. And so call it a quarter life crisis, call it whatever you want. I was like, okay, what do I actually care about? And I knew I had this newfound love for tea. And um, about three months before I got fired from the hotel, I had actually started my company, Tea's Tea. And again, like at the time, it was just more of like a creative outlet. I was blending teas out of my tidy condo in Toronto. People that I worked with were curious about trying some of it. And it really wasn't anything big. But when I got fired, I was like, okay, I want to just like dive into this full time. I want to become a full time entrepreneur. And I obviously didn't know a thing about entrepreneurship. And especially, you know, me being so naive, thinking I could just like, oh, you know, become a full time tea uh, owner, tea company owner, and just like <laughs> be able to pay all the bills magically overnight. That's obviously not what happened. I realized very, very early that I needed to find another job that would help bankroll my ability to run my business and pay my bills at home. And so, 
I decided to kind of start over and that's where I found Shopify and I started in customer support and I started from the beginning and like that role is an entry level role in the company. It doesn't take like a great deal of experience to kind of get that role. And I thought it was going to be like this, you know, this temporary job until I, you know, again, became like this huge successful like team mogul. But what ended up happening, well, here I am, it's like six years later and I'm still at Shopify um, and I love it. And I've been like growing in my role. I'm, I'm in leadership again. I've, I've been in leadership for five years at Shopify while leading a team of merchant success managers who help our, our larger merchants on plus. And my company has only continued to grow as well at TST. We're now like a, a very large company that supports customers in over 30 countries. And um, I think I fundamentally believe like the only reason why I've been able to like continue to do both at the same time is because like I'm in this really great ecosystem where the more I'm helping support our merchants succeed, you know, this whole idea of, well, if they can do it, you know, why not me? So take me back to those like early, early days of TST. When did it start to feel like a real business? That's a great question. I think the first time I started to feel like a real business was when I started, this sounds so bad, but when I started to resent the orders coming in because, <laughs> and let me explain. Uh, so when things started to like really take off, I would say, so just for context for, for anyone listening, like I started TST in very late 2013. And then probably in 2016 was when we started to get so like just so many more orders. By then we had launched on Amazon. We were, um, you know, doing more wholesale partnerships and stuff like that. Um, but the more orders that came in, the more I was like, oh my gosh, the more tea orders I have to pack at night. I started to resent it and I was like, I, I don't want to be packing tea. Like I, I really love selling tea. I really love promoting like the purpose behind our mission at TST and, and all this stuff. And so I thought, okay, I might actually have to quit my job at Shopify. And I was so frustrated by that because I actually love my job. You know, I, I, I loved it deeply and I thought, but I can't keep up with the orders on the evenings and I'm, I'm going to, you know, this is going to be bad for my health. Like this is not sustainable. And so my now husband at the time, he was my boyfriend, uh, we were living together and he said, you know what? I'm a civil engineer. I work in the National Research Council. Like I have a great job. I like my job, but I don't love my job like you do. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to support your company full time and I'm going to pack all the tea. So you don't even have to worry about that. I'm going to be your fulfillment person. I'm going to run Amazon, like the back end of it, all that kind of stuff. That's when I knew I was going to marry him. <laughs> <laughs> so sweet. Oh, my God. <laughs> but also that's when I also knew, oh, shit, I have a real business because this is even though he was just my boyfriend at the time, like I was now responsible for another human's livelihood other than my own. Yeah. How could you not marry him after something like that? That is so sweet. It's a good one. So why was it important for you to build this company with a social mission? Is that something that you kind of did right from the start or like when did that come about? Well, it's so funny because, and again, this is why I love your podcast. I get so many of these like light bulb moments in retrospect, like, like looking back. And I think that, you know, again, that longing for community was really the catalyst as to like why it was so important for me to combine passion with purpose at TST. And, and I, I think I've really only come to that 
realization fairly recently. And so, you know, I looked at what was important to me, you know, what were some of the issues that mattered to me and, and specifically that was um, helping to support other under-supported or underrepresented women um, because of my own complicated challenges growing up where I feel like I didn't have that support system. And so early on, TST has always been about this idea that you know, with a cup of tea, you can not only invest in yourself, but you can invest in women around the world. And I think it just works so beautifully. So in our early days, it was a very loosely structured program. It was like every month we were supporting different organizations that were on a mission to empower women. Um, and we didn't have a lot of parameters outside of that. You know, TC didn't care if you were a shelter or a startup or something in between. You know, we wanted to highlight you um, each month. We wanted a new partner. That was all great. And what we did is we we basically offered um, product, time, or currency. Those were like the three investments in women, you know? And so we kind of figured out what made the most sense. The problem with what we set up though is it started to feel very transactional after a few years and at no, at no fault of the organizations that we were working with, it was more so like, man, it's taking a lot of work to like find, like identify a company every month that we want to work with, let alone form a relationship with them. And then on top of that, execute a partnership. And then on top of that, um, figure out what the metrics are behind the impact behind our contributions and then tell that story to our customers because at the end of the day, it's their money that's going to these organizations, right? And so it felt really difficult to like connect those dots. And that's where it started to feel transactional very quickly. And we weren't able to take the time to dig into understanding our impact. And then it just felt a little bit hollow after a bit. So that's when in 2019, I reached out to someone very close to me at the time. And I said, hey, I really want to build a more robust program at TC for our mission to empower women. And I need help building a program. And, and all I know top of mind is that in all my years figuring out what I'm passionate about, I am intensely passionate about supporting underrepresented women entrepreneurs that are struggling because we we know we all know the data as to like why there's lacking so much equity in entrepreneurship between men and women and then especially between you know women of color so we created our own program it was called the tst founders fund in 2019 and that was our community and it was just like this very small scrappy program that we kind of like threw together with like you know my my very loosely structured vision of like what I wanted it to look like. But the cool thing that happened, Marcia, is that we essentially challenged successful entrepreneurs to do two things. Can you um, contribute the currency of money and help provide to a pool of funding um, that's non-repayable for women entrepreneurs? Or can you contribute the currency of time and help mentor, you know, the next generation of budding women identifying entrepreneurs? And so what happened from there, which I did not expect, is that it kind of blew up. Then the second part of it was really making sure that when we reached out to our funders, who were the people that were contributing financially, and our mentors who were contributing their time in mentoring, we made so sure from day one that we were truly curating and selecting experienced entrepreneurs that actually accurately reflect the Canadian landscape of entrepreneurship. So for the community side of it, what types of formats and events do, do you run for the people participating? All kinds of events. I, I would say that I don't use the word events that that often in, in the context of Founders Fund, we call it programming. More so like when you become a member, like one of the most important things that you get access to is very thoughtful, organized programming with our mentor base. And these are group mentorship sessions. And it's like a free for all. Like you're not limited to the amount of 
sessions you can sign up for. Um, you can sign up for as many as you want and we cover all industries from legal to finance to leadership to um, even like our supplementary programming, like how to navigate burnout or avoid burnout, meditation. And then of course, like I said, the continued tactical ones around marketing and advertising and, and that sort of thing. So we really cover a wide range of soft skills and hard skills at Founders Fund for our members. And then externally, here's the thing, in, in the era of COVID, I feel like it's so difficult to do online events because it's like, it's very saturated now, right? And I think a lot of people are getting like, you know, Zoom fatigue of like all the events that are online now. And so we try to be very careful about not just adding another event for our external community um, for the sake of doing it. So what we try to do is we actually try to really leverage the other events that already exist and highlight and celebrate and promote those to our community. And so we can kind of like combine communities, if that makes sense, for events that are already done and everybody wins because, you know, the event that we're highlighting and promoting gets visibility, extra visibility. And then, you know, our community, whether it's our members internally or extended community, um, can join in on those opportunities as well. For sure. I think that's so amazing. And outside of that programming and, you know, those points where, you know, everybody kind of comes together, how are people continuing the conversation outside of those things? Is there like a Slack or a forum or, or something where people can, can just continue chatting? Yeah, absolutely. So we have our own Slack community where people can kind of connect ad hoc like with each other whenever they'd like. Uh, we also create our, our own directory of our members because we want to promote our members whenever possible. So, you know, when you become a member, you're included in our member directory. And that's often a place that a lot of our members will go, like if they're looking for a copywriter, if they're looking for a photographer, if they're looking for, you know, a web designer, you know, their first stop will probably be to like look at the directory or crowdsource in Slack which is great. So that's how like a lot of those, those conversations are continued. And then of course, in the actual programming sessions, those are where a lot of the best conversations happen. A lot of the questions happen in there and we get to connect with each other. And then I'd say further to that, we're bringing it back in the spring, um, but we've done this for the last last year, which worked very well, um, but our daily roundtable hangouts. And so all it is, is it's like a Zoom invite on your calendar for 30 minutes every day. Show up if you want. Don't show up if you're not feeling it. But the point is, it's there. And it's an opportunity for you to just like hang out in a non-structured environment and just talk to people. So I want to chat a little bit more about the financial side of the Founders Fund. I'm curious if there were any challenges on your end, you know, getting this off the ground and how do you keep it sustainable now? Mm -hmm. It was so tough. Like, I feel like when you're building any purpose-driven organization, you're going to be so under-resourced. And that was very, very difficult for us from day one. And, and I'll just be honest, like it's, it still is now. So in 2019, when I say I built a company inside of a company, Honestly, like for us, we put a pause on all other organizations that we were working with and we exclusively focused on Founders Fund. So when we say a portion of proceeds from every order at TC supports programs dedicated to elevating uh, the lives or businesses of women, it was only Founders Fund in 2018. Like we just made sure that that money was going there and that our time was going there. But then again, that created that blurry boundary of creating a, a company inside of a company and needing to separate that. So then 
We knew we needed a revenue model <clears throat> when it became its own uh, company in 2020. And so we started uh, our membership model. And so accessibility was still extremely important to us, but we knew we had to at least cover our costs. And so what we did is we created a program where you would invest in a membership and then half of that membership would go directly to the pool of non-repayable funding for women entrepreneurs. But yeah, this idea of like half of your membership being invested directly into the funding pool really resonated deeply with our members that were buying into it. They were like, oh, this is so cool. Not only can I invest in myself as an entrepreneur and invest in myself to get access to like these mentorship and apply for funding and, and all this kind of good stuff, access community, but I'm also at the same time investing in other women entrepreneurs in a very accessible, approachable way. And I think that really spoke to them. And I'm so proud to be part of it and so proud to be a member. So I wanted to ask you if there are any really touching or meaningful connections or, you know, just like anything really magical that has happened within this community that you'd like to share and that is something that you're really proud of there. So a lot of people were sharing on social media, you know, applying for the Founders Fund, like for the funding and all, and all that stuff. And they were super hyped up about it. But there is this one post on social media that like really struck me. So her name is uh, Ado and she's the founder of, of Naya Hair. And uh, I got to know her through her involvement with Founders Fund. But she applied our very first year with funding. And she posted on social media this beautiful post that basically said, I'm so honored to be a part of the Founders Fund because mentors who look like me remind me that I'm capable of taking up space and disrupting e-commerce. And that gave me goosebumps because it was so early on with Founders Fund that like it was just that jolt like that like, okay, wow, this is why we do what we do. This is why we are here. There are so many people who do not feel seen in entrepreneurship or there's so many people who don't, you can't Google what you don't know to Google in the first place, right? And so that that post just kind of gave me goosebumps and, and was a, a huge reminder of, of why we're here. And then, you know, the example I wanted to share with one of our funders, Carla Briones, you know, talking about like a mutually impactful ecosystem of value. She came on board as a funder and she contributed financially to our program. So her background is she's a coach for immigrant entrepreneurs, but she also owns multiple successful franchises. So freshies and, uh, and things like that. And so when she came on board, I was really excited because the data at Founders Fund told us that 33% of our members identify as immigrant entrepreneurs. And this is before Carla became involved. And so looking at that data and knowing that 33% identified as such, when Carla expressed her interest, I was so hyped up and excited because I knew it was bigger than the financial contribution of her getting involved with Founders Fund, but she is literally on a mission to help support this community. And so it was just like, it was perfect. And so that was like a great reminder of like always looking at the data of like who our members are and that we don't have to carry the burden and responsibility as like the program organizers to say like we're here to solve everyone's need we can lean into other people in the community that are already doing this so well and like have them support this journey as well and also i think as a community builder or program creator you can be like so just like buried in it you know you're just kind of like in the weeds of the logistical side of things but when you look up and you see this type of connection happening or the impact that you're making that's the thing that really keeps you going so it's so cool that you had that moment 
So I want to get some of your advice for listeners. I think it's so impressive. Everything that you do is just like it's mind boggling. Your leadership at Shopify, you're running a hugely successful e-commerce company. You have Founders Fund. You have other businesses that you're working on as well. How do you do it all? Can you share a little bit about, you know, balance and the building a team, hiring, delegation? Like, how does it all come together to make you be able to do everything that you do? The short answer is I don't do it all, right? And and you've heard me say that. Like, I don't do it all. There are incredible people behind me and beside me and in front of me that really helps support everything. Like I mentioned, you know, my, my now husband being like a key part of that support in the, in the early days, right. To help me get where I am today. But in short, like how do I in air quotes, like do it all. I would say for anyone listening, like find people that you can thoughtfully and meaningfully delegate tasks to, um, or responsibilities for what you're working on so that you can continue to focus on what you're good at. And I know it can be so hard to do that in the early days when you might not have the capital to like justify that. But even just a small example, like I had so much shame when I hired a house cleaner years ago. Okay. Like I had so much shame around it, but I hired a house cleaner. She would only come by at the time, like every two weeks. And I felt guilty and I felt shame. But once I did it, I was like, oh my gosh, I can actually focus on selling more tea instead of cleaning toilets. Life changing. That was like the light bulb moment. It was like, wait a minute. Sure, I can clean my own house. I'm capable of doing that. But doesn't mean I should or have to, you know? And and so I give that example of like the, the house cleaner because fine, low, price high impact opportunities to change your life okay so like it's not very expensive to hire a house cleaner that really was like the what really kind of was the catalyst of realizing like okay if i can like delegate certain areas in my life or in my business or at work um to focus on what i'm good at it'll not only keep me motivated to keep going but it'll get me out of this idea of constantly working in my business in the weeds instead of on my business that's such great advice and you know like i I think a lot of people sort of know that deep down that you can't do it all yourself and that you have to delegate and you know when you have the ability to hire to hire but i think it's a lot uh, harder to actually put it into practice and to give up control of certain aspects of your business but i think once you realize that you know there's somebody who could do this a lot better than you and you just have to step out of their way that's when things really start changing. Oh, yes. Like a lot better and a lot faster. And that's why I love the the cleaning analogy. It's like, you know, that company was a lot better at doing that. And it also took the mental load off of me to like when I would be working on my business, you know, those minor freakouts like, oh my gosh, I have I have to clean the floors. I have to fold the laundry or whatever it was, right? It just created space to like unblock that stress so I could just focus on you know, the, the, the work. So something else that I wanted to ask you about is knowing the numbers in your company. I think that knowing your numbers is crucial to make your company or community sustainable. I know that it's something that you're really passionate about now and something that you really love. But going back to your early days, you did share that taking on debt was something that was really scary for you with your business. How did you change your mindset around, you know, the math side of business? And how did you come to love it? Like I was afraid of numbers forever. I was afraid of debt. I then became a huge advocate of financial literacy through running my business. And the reason why was because my mindset towards money 
ended up being to my detriment when it came time to get the financial support I needed for my business. I really needed to unfuck myself. I'm just going to say it because I was not obsessed with the numbers like I, I needed to be and I was afraid of debt. And like those two things combined held me back from success that I could have maybe experienced earlier on or navigating challenges earlier on with my business. And what I mean by that is by three or four years into my business at TST, I had a profitable company year after year after year. I had guaranteed purchase orders. I had what I thought on paper looked like a superstar company that should allow me to get um, loans to help support my business. And I would talk to my banks and I would say like, hey, like I need a loan to help support these purchase orders that I'm getting. I can't keep up. Every time I get a purchase order, uh, it's crippling my cash flow and I can't pay other bills because I'm fronting the cost for this purchase order. And they were like, yeah, well, we, we can't, we can't help you. And, and I, and I would say, why? And they said, well, you know, you don't really have a, a track record of success, like in your, in your credit file. And I thought, well, like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, I don't have any like outstanding debt. I don't have any credit cards. And they're like, that's, that's actually the problem. And I was like, hey, hold up. Like, wait a minute. You're telling me that here I was in my twenties thinking I was being a good girl and not taking out credit cards, not taking out loans, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and thinking like that was like the right thing to do only to learn that was like the wrong thing to do to get a loan later on. And they were like, yeah, you need to have like a track record of success. Like, you, you know, the, you know, whether it's CRA or lenders or whatever, they need to look that you like look at your record and know that you have the ability to not only take on debt, but pay it off successfully. And you don't have a file at all. Like you have nothing. So that was a huge problem. And then understanding the finances of my business, I would just, you know, shove the paperwork at my, you know, my bankers. And I would say, hey, like, just if you want to know about my business, like take a look at the notice of assessments. And they'd be like, no, but you tell me the story of your company. And I'm like, it's right there in front of you. Um, And so what I, I was really getting frustrated and that bank ended up giving me business cards to other banks. And that's when I knew, okay, I've already fired a bank. This new bank is giving me business cards to other banks. Like I, I don't know how I'm going to get help. And it was actually at a Startup Canada event. Um, I'll try and get this story in really short. But there is this um, VP of, I can't remember his role, but he did this talk. He represented BDC. And um, he was talking about the exact challenges that I was experiencing. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go find this guy. I'm going to go chase him and stalk him after this event. And I'm going to go talk to him and sit down with him. And so he gave me five minutes of time. And I said everything I just you know, shared with you right now on this podcast. And he's like, I love your story. He's like, I'm going to send someone to your office on Monday. And I was like, I'm not holding my breath. Sure enough, he actually did. Um, he sent Catherine to my office and big shout out to Catherine because she's still my account manager to this day at BDC and she's amazing. Um, but you want to talk about mentors. Like this woman taught me the power of financial literacy within two hours because she started asking me the tough questions that the same bankers had before. And I would say, look at the paperwork in front of you. Like it's all there. And she's like, no, Sheena, you need to understand something. Those numbers on the paper only tell one side of the story. Like I need to know you as the business owner and like what, what those numbers translate to you and your story and the story of your business. And so when we talk about, you know, how much equity is in your company, when we talk about profit and loss, when we talk about what these items are on the balance sheet, like I need to see your ability to like communicate what that means beyond what is here in the numbers. But what was really cool about that moment with Catherine is she said, look, I'm going to be real with you. You're a new client to BDC. Like this, we can give you this term sheet, but it's going to be higher interest than I would like you to have to pay. I still think you should go back to your original home bank, the one that gave you business cards to other banks 
And I want you to go back and speak to them the way you and I have just connected on your numbers. And I was like, okay, fine. So I'll, I'll try this again. So I did that. And then I'm not even kidding. Within like a week, my credit on my credit card limit doubled and I received a, you know, a five figure line of credit to help support the working capital needs for my business. And that dramatically changed my business overnight. And it was all thanks to Catherine at BDC for like really reminding me like of the importance of financial literacy, understanding the numbers, telling the story of them. And um, more importantly, of course, you know, through my journey, like that not all debt is bad debt. So I want to chat about your personal community outside of work and outside of the community that you've built. I think it's really fascinating how community builders actually navigate their personal communities. So I want to start with Ottawa, the city that you chose as your home. You've lived and worked all over the world. You've lived in places like New York and California and Toronto and so many other places in between. What makes Ottawa so special to you and why did you decide to settle down there? I spent years of my life running away from Ottawa to only end up in Ottawa and never be happier in my entire life. Like the uh, the irony in that is wild. I, I think Ottawa has a bit of a bad <laughs> reputation, which I think actually it's it's come a long way. Don't get me wrong, but it held this reputation for being a super white collar conservative city where, you know, everyone is in a similar social class, working class, like, you know, all, all that type of stuff and just, you know, kind of boring. And so, you know, I, I just was running away from that and lived in all these great cities and then to how I ended up in Ottawa. Well, there's this saying out there, you either move for money or love. Me moving to Ottawa was not for money. Like after <laughs> after living in, in Toronto and building, you know, my, my career at that point there, that's where I met, you know, my, my now husband. And he was the reason why I moved to Ottawa. And I thought it was going to be temporary again. Um, but yeah, we were doing like the long distance thing. He was in Ottawa. I was in Toronto. And he was like, Sheena, like, I can't do this anymore. The next time I see you, I'm coming with a U-Haul truck. And he did. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I guess I'm moving back to Ottawa. Um, and then I got here with like this completely new lens uh, of the city. And I absolutely am madly in love with this city. I think it has you know, a, a beautiful dynamic culture. I think that, you know, everything from the culinary industry to like the tech industry to to everything that's going on, it's beautiful. It, it's not as like hopping as other, you know, big cities. But what I love most about Ottawa is you get the best of both worlds. You get a big city vibe with like that small town community. It's all about what you make of it. I think, you know, you have this opportunity to actually build something really cool there and to like gather people and, you know, to, to find like-minded people who are, you know, also interesting and, you know, are not necessarily in government and, you know, who have like a wide variety of interests and to bring them together and to, to try new things and, you know, to really make the city your own. So in Ottawa, or, you know, now with COVID, now that community is really like virtual for the most part, what other communities are you part of and why are they meaningful to you? Yeah, so I am loosely part of the Creative Mornings community here in Ottawa. It's amazing. There's some incredible people behind it, but Creative Mornings is an awesome community of creatives. So I love the Ottawa chapter. Um, it's it, Like I said, it's run by some amazing people, and it just brings together creatives in the community, and they come up with themes every month. I love the Invest Ottawa community here. They are amazing. What I love most about Invest Ottawa is that they have been so 
open-minded about acknowledging their shortcomings in the past, which I love. Um, Invest Ottawa, you know, historically really served the typical uh, stereotype of like what you look at with when you picture CEO, right? Like the white male tech dude or whatever. And so historically like that, you know, they attracted a lot of people that like looked like that community and um, didn't have a lot of space for others. But in the, in the last like four or five years, like forget about like not just accountability, but the actual work that they're doing to make it so much more of an inclusive space for moms, for parents, for, you know, again, like the um, intersectional like spectrum of what entrepreneurship looks like in Canada has been uh, remarkable. And so, yeah, I love that the work that, that they do. That's really cool. And, you know, for the people that you spend the most time with, like the five to six people closest to you, how do you choose them? Do you feel like you look for certain qualities in those people or like how do you sort of like figure out who's going to be the closest to you? I look for people who understand me. Um, if you're going to be in my inner circle, like that's important. If you know me personally, like I am a very unfiltered person that shows up as like my full self um, for better, for worse. Yeah, I would also say like who is in the same arena as me in the sense that like they are committed to becoming like a better human. I totally agree with that. And also, I think, you know, you've, you've come such a long way from those days in hospitality when, like you said, your evenings, your weekends, your holidays were spent, you know, just like pleasing other people and strangers, where now you can be so intentional about who you spend that time with and the community that you form around yourself. So my last question for you, and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does the word community mean to you? Community means just simply being able to show up and, and be your authentic self. And it goes right back to what I just shared. Like, I, I feel very fortunate that in my community, um, you know, that, that we've created collectively at Founders Fund to like the community that I have at Shopify um, with like the people that I get to work with every day to even um, my personal friendships. Like, I am just so proud that like I'm in a, in a world where I can show up as my authentic self. I don't have to be that chameleon anymore. You know, I don't have to be filtered or, or scared of like how how i'm going to come across or anything like that there's a lot of high trust relationships that are built with like uh, assumed positive intent um through all of that and so yeah i think that that is really what makes community for me is just being able to show up as your authentic self sheena thank you so much for joining me it was such a pleasure to chat with you as always marcia the pleasure is just as much as mine i'm a super fan of everything you're doing here so thank you for this opportunity oh thank you so much I had such a great time chatting with Sheena, and I hope you felt inspired by the conversation. If you take away one thing, it's the mindset and audacity of why not you. You're uniquely qualified to be creating whatever it is you're working on, so please don't doubt yourself and keep at it. You can connect with Sheena on LinkedIn at Sheena Brady, and you can learn more about TST and Founders Fund at tst.com and foundersfund.ca. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. 
A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.